How can monks come naked? Should they not come covered up with grass or leaves? This is episode 95 of uh, Edward Reap's Buddhist Books podcast, um, Tipitaka Part 34, in which I will read Nisagiya, Parts 6 and 7. Um, happy Dakini Day. Now, um, for the Indians in, uh, in the viewership, don't click away just yet. I will explain. And for you others who are confused, saying, oh, thank you. Yes, it is Dakini Day, isn't it? Um, I will explain why I need to explain to them. And uh, this will be a little bit fun. A little bit, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it seems, it depends, depending, if your if you're friend lists on the old social media are in any way similar to mine, then every so often you'll see people saying Happy Dakini Day and you're like, didn't we just have one of those? Has it really been a year? No, no, they have those once every Tibetan month on the 25th. I know today's the 23rd. They seem to be posting it today. So I think it must be the 25th on the Tibetan months. A lunar calendar, I assume. Um, so what happened? Dakini is a Sanskrit-based word which means something like flying ghost woman. Please correct me in the comments below. I am uh, largely coming from a position of ignorance, but I do have an anecdote I want to share, where uh, when I had a couple of books that say Dakini in the title, and uh, Priyal was kind of horrified. And, you know, anybody around, anybody kind of from a Hindu background or with any kind of awareness of... Uh, these things of, of Indian uh, culture and uh, lore will uh, be a little bit like, but why? You know, it, it's sort of like the equivalent of, um, you know, someone having a book that says the demon code or something, but not as cool. I think these days there'd be a lot of people going, oh, you like demons, me too. I got a tattoo and a little plush toy. Uh, but yeah, it's it's more like horrifying. It's sort of like you know, um, like a horror movie character uh, in in the mind of a lot of people. And so, of course, I did a bit of digging to find out why that was. So, as it turns out, um, and again, this is probably an incomplete story. And we will, by the way, we're over here, not over there. We're in Vajrayana. Uh, for the moment. We'll get back to that and we'll get to the reading. Um, so Padmasambhava, as part of his journey, went to the charnel grounds in Bodhgaya. 
and the uh, the spot is known, but there's no longer charnel grounds. That means like a funeral, you know, where the ashes are burned and stuff like that. There's other charnel grounds nearby. Um, so you know, when we got in the cab and said, "Yeah, we're going to the charnel grounds," and I was saying, "We're going to this longitude and this latitude," and they took me to the charnel grounds. I'm like, "No, we're nowhere near where I want to go." And we went there. There was a forest. In fact, that forest. And uh, so I sat and meditated for a while, and picked up this rock in the charnel grounds where Padmasambhava sat, or what had formerly been the charnel grounds where Padmasambhava sat. One of the things he did while he was there was commune with a lot of restless spirits, including Dakinis. And one of his things that he was known for, you remember Padmasambhava, uh, is getting all kinds of, you know, bone deities or, or demonic entities or restless spirits or even evil spirits to convert to Buddhism and then they would become Dharma protectors. And they would be um, celebrated in, in his particular uh, version of Vajrayana Buddhism. And he was the one who I believe was the very first one to bring Vajrayana Buddhism into Tibet. So in Tibet, that Sanskrit word, Sanskrit coming from, well, the Aryans, but then you know becoming popular in Northern India over the past few thousand years. Um, that Sanskrit word Dakini became a word for a kind of fierce goddess of Buddhism. And uh, here we have uh, one of our special guests, Vajrayogini. And uh, I honestly am largely ignorant. I, I know a few anecdotal stories, but I'm not going to go into those right now. But surely, as we get down to the third shelf, we're now we're now reading that book. And as we eventually get down to this shelf down here, then we'll find out a lot more about her. So these are sneak previews of things to come in future years of this podcast. Um, so yeah, she is, I think, the best known uh, Tibetan tantric Dakini. But then, meanwhile, in India, uh, which generally speaking didn't have much contact with what was going on in Tibet, during, for example, the Mughal period, which I mentioned, you remember the fans and the people dancing, twirling, Akbar and all that. Anyway, um, so yes, uh, in I believe, gosh, was it the 1400s or the 1700s? I did this research four years ago, three and a half years ago. Uh, there was a particular, um, it's not a sutra. What's the word for like a sacred document in Hinduism? Well, anyway, there was a particular document written by, a, you know, a yogi or, or master, pundit, something like that, that became very well known, in which the villain, but basically the, uh, the, the evil spirit that had to be subdued and done away with by a holy man, was known as the Dakini. And so, as a result, in the uh, popular collective consciousness of India, it became a bad word that you don't even want to say that word out loud because you might call her, you know, there's kind of that idea of like, you, you're not supposed to say jinn because here, you know, that is taken very seriously. The fire spirits that are, uh, you know, not the Aladdin version with Robin Williams and all that, the, the genies, it's the same thing, but um, taken in a very different light here. So same with Dakini. It's kind of popularly known in, in Indian Hindu culture as like a bad thing and then celebrated as a kind of goddess. And then there's a lot of, uh, oh, let's say non-Tibetan, non-Indian 
uh, people, uh, New Agers, uh, and what have you, throughout the world who um, identify with the idea of Dakini, being a Dakini. I am a Dakini. They have that as their, their handle and their identity, um, largely due to the popularity of Shimbalaya. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Our other special guest here is the... Now, real quick, if I were to say that there is a, uh, a Buddhist prosperity goddess, based on the information that you've gotten thus far from uh, uh, the teachings of the Buddha at, in the, as presented in the uh, Tipitaka, a natural response would be, I think you're mistaken. That doesn't sound like a thing that would exist in Buddhism. And you would have a point. However, um, we are covering all these different forms of Buddhism, that one too, um, not just these two. Um, and by the time it gets into this area, Mahayana starts to mingle a little bit with, uh, with Hinduism. And by the time we've reached the 5th century, 6th century, there is a phenomenon developing called Vajrayana Buddhism, which is um, Hinduism mixed with Buddhism and Tantra uh, being brought to, into being kind of in both. And this is then distinguished from the people who are strictly Mahayanists, which is also distinguished from the people who are strictly Theravadins, and then this uh, being something from the past that um, you know people look back to, but kind of kind of only exists in the form of of post Ashok Theravada. Um, so there there you have it. So yes. Um, then that mixture of Tantric Hinduism and Buddhism was exported to Tibet and absorbed a lot of the Bon culture. So a, 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 pure, a Theravadan purist would look at that and say, you know, perhaps that that's a travesty. Um, for example, my Nepali friend over in Darjeeling had uh, placed this statue in his window uh, as it is a very popular image in Vajrayana Buddhism, that's Lord Buddha with, uh, with Shakti. And, uh, and a Theravadan from Kerala walked by his shop and was so horrified that he took the man to court. And I, I didn't hear the, you know, how, that, uh, how the court case ended, but he actually had to go to court because uh, he was accused of desecrating the Buddha by having a traditional Buddhist, traditional Vajrayana Buddhist symbol in his store window, and it was so offensive to the uh, Theravadan Buddhists. A person might liken this to the difference between, say, the prosperity gospel in modern America or uh, Australia or what have you, um, as opposed to the more sort of communistic hippie version of Christianity, which was, you know, what Jesus was teaching. So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily liken it exactly that way, though I can understand where they're coming from. I personally, while I go through um, phases of feeling strongly one way or the other, I understand where, where uh, people are coming from when they are saying if you want to reach nirvana, then have no desire whatsoever. But I also understand where the Vajrayana is coming from, saying... Yes, but we need to integrate these things. We need to confront and not run away like Udayan from the from the woman um, to to find a way to achieve union uh, 
between male and female as part of the journey toward nirvana and, and in their paradigm it accelerates the journey toward nirvana but it's all meant to be built on the foundation of the Theravadan philosophy. So, okay, this is Vasudhara, uh, goddess of prosperity, um, much celebrated in Nepal, as well as in uh, Tibet and uh, probably Bhutan. I'll just read a little bit. Her name is Sanskrit, of course, means stream of gems, and uh, is goddess of wealth, prosperity, and abundance, one of the popular goddesses worshipped in many Buddhist countries, and a subject of Buddhist legends and art. And I'm going to go ahead and say something um, that might be considered controversial. And I'm saying it intentionally. Um, you might be familiar with her consort, Jambala. That is her man consort. Uh, her, her, her boy that she calls upon and says, hey, hey, I'm doing some, some work here. I need you to hop to it and be my, my other half for this work that I'm doing. I'm putting it that way because normally it's put the other way. The, the women are said to be the consorts of, you know, Shakti is the consort of Shiva, and uh, so on and so forth. But the term consort, I don't know, it just seems kind of like, uh, maybe it sounds too much like concubine or something. So let's find out if I pronounced the title of the reading properly. Nisagiha. All right. If I didn't pronounce it properly, then I will cut that and paste it toward the beginning of the episode. So if you saw that little blip and you were like, what? Then that's, that's what that was. Forfeiture. Oh, if this is your first time seeing me, do go ahead and click here. Um, that will start you at the beginning of the Tibitaka playlist with part one rather than part 34. Why would you start with part 34? And let's take this back. Oh, didn't use the knob. Sometimes you can just pull it itself and the knob turns on its own. It's a thing. All right. Forfeiture. Nisakiya. Six. At one time. The Enlightened One, the Lord, was staying at Sabati in the Jetta Grove in Anattapindika's monastery. Now, at that time, the Venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, came to be skilled in giving Dhammatak. Is this a new guy? Upananda. Well, I dub the Upananda, son of the Sakyans. Oh, you can't see it. Put you up on the. You can hang out over by Vajrayogini. Take care of him. He's a good boy. Now, at that time, a certain son of a great merchant approached the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans. And having approached and greeted the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, he sat down at a respectful distance. As he was sitting at a respectful distance, the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, gladdened three dots and delighted that the son of a great merchant with Dhammatak. Oh, excuse me. And delighted that son of a great merchant with Dhammatak. That makes more sense great in parentheses. 
And then the son of the great, in parentheses, merchant, having been gladdened, three dots, and delighted by the... Ven I'm going to assume there's something very dirty in those three dots, but there probably isn't. But we'll pretend. I'll pretend. You do what you will. And delighted by the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, with Dhammatak, said to the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, quote, Honored sir, do let me know what will be of use. We are able to give to the master, that is to say, of the requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicine for the sick, end quote. He says, if you, sir, are desirous of giving something to me, give me one cloth from these, he said. Me, in parentheses. Quote, wait, honored sir, until I go to the house. Having gone to the house, I will send either one cloth from these or something better than these. He must have cloths with him. End quote. The second time, the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, said to the son of the great, in parentheses, merchant, three dots. A third time, the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, said to the son of the great merchant, quote, if you, sir, are desirous of giving something to me, give me one cloth from these. So he's saying, give me one of these, not one from over there, not something better, one of these. Right? Quote, now, honored sir, for us who are sons of respectful families, is it, it is awkward to go out with only one piece of cloth. Wait, honored sir, until I go to the house Having gone to the house, I will send either one cloth from these or something better than these. Quote, what is the good, sir, of offering without desire to give? Because even after you have offered, you do not give. Upananda asks him. That's a good point. Then that son of the great merchant, being pressed by the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, giving one cloth, went away. People, seeing the son of a great, in parentheses, merchant, spoke thus, quote, Why do you, master, come with only one cloth? <laughs> End quote. Then this son of a great, in parentheses, merchant, told this matter to these people. The people looked down upon, criticized, spread it about, saying, quote, These recluses, sons of the Sakyans, have great desires. They are not contented. Among them, it is not easy to make reasonable requests. How can they take a cloth when a reasonable request was made by the son of a great, in parentheses, merchant? End quote. Monks heard these people who three dots spread it about. Those who were modest monks, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, How can the venerable Upananda, the son of the Sakyans, ask the son of a great in parentheses merchant for a robe? End quote. Then these monks told this matter to the Lord. He said, is it true that you, Upananda, asked the son of the great in parentheses merchant for a robe? End quote. 
It is true, Lord, he said. Is he a relation of yours, Upananda, or not a relation? End quote. He is not a relation, Lord, he said. Quote, Lord Buddha says. Foolish man. One who is not a relation does not know what is suitable or what is unsuitable or what is right or what is wrong for one who is not a relation. Thus you, foolish man, will ask a son of a great in parentheses merchant for a robe. It is not foolish man for pleasing those who are not yet in parentheses pleased. Three dots. Oh, I promised we were going to play that again. Let's do it. It is not foolish men for pleasing those who are not yet pleased. Three dots. What was the rest of that? This is the first time we're hearing about being pleased. Wow. Okay. That was from Nisa, the forfeitures. Perhaps it was uh, supposed to, meant to be similar to something from earlier. Let's, let's check. It is not foolish man. For the benefit of unbelievers, nor for the increase in the number of believers, but foolish man, it is to the detriment of both unbelievers and believers, and it causes wavering in some. All right, we'll assume that's what was meant to go in those dots. All right, and thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. Whatever monk should ask a man or a woman householder who is not a relation of his in parentheses for a robe, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture, and thus this rule of training for monks came to be laid down by the Lord. Now, at that time, several monks were going along the high road from Saketa to Savati. I know that. Midway on the road, thieves issuing forth plundered these monks. Then these monks said, quote, It is forbidden by the Lord to ask a man or a woman householder who is not a relation for a robe. End quote. And being scrupulous, they did not ask. But in parentheses, going naked as they were to Sabati, they saluted the monks respectfully. The monks said, quote, Your reverences, these naked ascetics are very good because they respectfully salute these monks, end quote. They said, quote, your reverences, we are not naked ascetics, we are monks, end quote. The monks said to the venerable Upali, quote, if so, reverend Upali, question these, end quote. The reverend Upali. Then the venerable Upali, having questioned these monks, said to the monks, quote, These are monks, your reverences. Give them robes. End quote. Those who were modest monks, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, How can monks come naked? Should they not come covered up with grass or leaves? End quote. Then these monks told this matter to the Lord. Then the Lord, on that occasion, in that connection, having given reasoned talk, addressed the monks, saying, quote, I allow monks, one whose robe is stolen or one whose robe is destroyed, 
to ask a man or woman householder who is not a relation of his, in parentheses, for a robe. If there is for the order at the first residence which he approaches either a robe in the dwelling place or a bed cover or a ground covering or a mattress cover, I allow, I allow being in parentheses, him to take it to put on. If he says, quote, within quotes, getting a robe, a robe in parentheses, I will replace it, end quote, within quotes. But if there is not for the order either a robe in the dwelling place or a bed cover or a ground covering or a mattress cover, then he should come up with grass or leaves. Covered, he should come covered up with grass or leaves. But he should not come naked. Who should... So come, there is an offense of wrongdoing. And thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. Whatever monk should ask a man or woman householder who is not a relation of his, in parentheses, for a robe, except at the right time, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. This is the right time in this case. If a monk becomes one whose robe is stolen or whose robe is destroyed, in this case, this is the right time. End quote. All right. Whatever means, we, we did the copy-pasting last time, so hopefully you remember what whatever means. It was in the previous episode. Monk means, remember the previous episode? Not a relation means one who is not related on the mother's side or on the father's side back through seven generations. A householder means he who lives in a house. A woman householder means she who lives in a house. Like Smurfette means female Smurf. A robe means any one of the six kinds of robes, including the least one fit for assignment, kinds of and including both being in parentheses. Except at the right time means setting the right time to one side. One whose robe is stolen means a monk's robe becomes stolen by kings or by thieves or by rogues, or it becomes stolen by anyone whatsoever. One whose robe is destroyed means a monk's robe becomes burnt by fire, or it becomes carried away by water, or it becomes eaten by rats and white ants, or it becomes worn by use. If he asks, except at the right time, there is an offense of wrongdoing in the action. It is to be forfeited on acquisition. It should be forfeited to the order, or to a group, or to an individual. And thus, monks, should it be forfeited. Quote within quotes, This robe, honored sirs, asked for by me from a householder who is not a relation except at the right time, is to be forfeited. I forfeit it to the order. End quote within quotes three dots. Open quote within quotes three dots. The order should give back three dots. Let the venerable ones give back three dots. I will give back this robe to the venerable one. This was the part that I was going to uh, play the whole thing. Let's do it. I forfeit it to the order, end quote. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. 
The offense should be acknowledged by an experienced, competent monk. The robe forfeited should be given back with the words, with the words being in parentheses, quote within quote. Honored sirs, let the order listen to me. This robe of the monk so-and-so, which had to be forfeited, is forfeited by him to the order, by him being in parentheses. If it seems right to the order, the order should give back this robe to the monk so-and-so, end quote, within quotes. That monk, approaching two or three monks, arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, three dots, joined palms, should speak thus, quote within quote, honored sirs, this robe is to be forfeited by me, asked for by me from a householder who is not a relation except at the right time. I forfeit it to the venerable ones. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. The offense should be acknowledged by an experienced, competent monk. The robe forfeited should be given back with the words, with, with the words being in parentheses, quote, within quotes, let the venerable ones listen to me. This robe of the monk so-and-so, which had to be forfeited, is forfeited, by him, in parentheses, to the venerable ones. If it seems right to the venerable ones, let the venerable ones give back this robe to the monk so-and-so. Okay, so now you know what goes in the three dots. I have a general idea, and I will know when I edit that in the thing that you just heard. Never mind. Unnecessary, making things complicated. If he thinks that a man or woman, in parentheses, is not a relation when he is not a relation, and, in parentheses, the and is in parentheses, asks for a robe except at the right time, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he is in doubt as to whether a man is not a relation and... Uh, asks for a robe except at the right time, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that a man is a relation when he is not a relation, and asks for a robe except at the right time, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that a man is not a relation when he is a relation, there is an offense, didn't we just read that? Okay. Right. No, we read the opposite. So if he thinks it is a relation, but it's not a relation. If he thinks it's not a relation, but it is a relation. Forfeiture, buddy. Doesn't matter if, if he actually is a relation, but you think he's not. You did something wrong in your mind. But if you think that he's a relation, but he's not, you did something wrong in reality. If you do something wrong, it's forfeiture. I mean, in this, does it make sense? If he thinks that a man is not a relation when he is a relation, there is an offensive wrongdoing. If he is in doubt as to whether a man is a relation, there is an offensive wrongdoing. If he thinks that a man is a relation when he is a relation, do you know? You know? There is no offense, right? Because you can ask for a relation. Because, you know, a family knows kind of the, the, the ways of that family, I think is the idea. That not all families do things the same way. So asking for a certain thing um, in a certain way might be considered rude if it's not from your cousin or your brother who 
theoretically you would have an idea of how they think and how they do things and how things are done around there. So if you're a monk and you're at your cousin's house, even if it's seven times removed or, you know, seventh cousin, right? Then you can ask for a robe. You can ask the woman to clean your robe. You can do a bunch of stuff that you can't do if they're not a seventh cousin. Cool. There is no offense if it is at the right time, if they belong to relations, if they are invited, if it is for another, if it is by means of his own property, if he is mad, or if he is the first wrongdoer. So all of these things like don't even apply if you've never done anything wrong before. They're just like, okay, next time, don't do this. So that was part six. Now, moving on to part seven. Nisagia 7, forfeiture 7. At one time, the enlightened one, the Lord, was staying at Sabati in the Jetta Grove in Anatapindika's monastery. At that time, a group of six monks, uh-oh, that can't be good, having come up to monks whose robes had been stolen, said, quote, Your reverences, one whose robe has been stolen or one whose robe has been destroyed is allowed by the Lord to ask for a robe from a man or woman householder who is not a relation. Your references, ask them for a robe. End quote. They said, no, we don't want one. Exactly like that in that accent. Uh, one being in parentheses. Your references, a robe has been obtained by us. End quote. Quote, we are asking for the venerable ones. End quote, they said. Quote, do ask them your reverences. Okay, let's see where this is going. Then the group of six monks, having approached the householders, said, quote, Sirs, monks are coming whose robes have been stolen. Give them robes. End quote. And they asked for many robes. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. At that time, a certain man who was, it's always a group of six monks that are like, hey, I bet we could find a cool loophole, you know. Anyway, at that time, a certain man who was sitting in a village assembly hall said to another man, quote, Master, monks are coming whose robes have been stolen. I gave them a robe. I don't know, end quote. Then he said, I also gave to them. Then another man said, I also gave to them. They, these men, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, How can these recluses, sons of the Sakyans, not knowing moderation, ask for many robes? Will the recluses, sons of the Sakyans, deal in the cloth trade? Or will they set us a shop? The monks heard these men, who, three dots, spread it about. Those who were modest monks, three dots, spread it about, saying, quote, How can a group of six monks, not knowing moderation, ask for many robes? Then these monks told this matter to the Lord. He said, quote, Is it true, as is said, that you monks, not knowing moderation, ask for many robes? End quote. It is true, Lord, they said. The enlightened one, the Lord, rebuked them. 
saying, How can you foolish men, not knowing moderation, ask for many robes? It is not foolish men for pleasing those who are not yet pleased. Three dots. And thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. If a man or a woman householder who is not a relation asking a monk in parentheses should invite him to take material for in parentheses many robes, then at most material for in parentheses an inner and an upper robe should be accepted as robe material by that monk. If he should accept more than that, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Him means the monk whose robe has been stolen. A man who is not a relation means, we went over that earlier, just three dots. Uh, for many robes means for abundant robes. The for in the phrase and in the definition of the phrase, both fours are in parentheses, just FYI. That means for your information. Uh, asking should invite means he says quote take just as much as you want end quote at most material for material for being in parentheses an inner and an upper robe <clears throat> should be accepted as robe material by that monk means if the three robes robes in parentheses come to be destroyed two may be accepted if two are destroyed one may be accepted if one is destroyed, nothing may be accepted. Ah, ah. All right. If he should accept more than that means, if he asks for more than that, there is an offense of wrongdoing in the action. It is to be forfeited on acquisition. It should be forfeited to the order, or to a group, or to an individual. And thus, monks, it should be forfeited. Quote, within quotes. Honored sirs, having gone up to a householder who is not a relation, this robe material asked for by me, more than that which I should ask for, in parentheses, is to be forfeited. I forfeit it to the order. End quote within quotes, three dots, three more dots. Oh, no. Uh, open quote within quotes, three dots. The order should give back, three dots, I will give back this robe to the venerable one. End quote. If he thinks that a man is not a relation when he is not a relation and asks for robe material more than that which he should ask for, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he is in doubt as to whether he is not a relation, three dots, it's all those same ones again, says the parentheses. Actually, it says C Nisag VI 3, comma 3. Three dots is no offense, right? There is no offense if saying, quote, I will take the remainder, end quote, taking it, he goes away. If they give the remainder saying, let it be only for you. If they do not give because a robe was stolen, if they do not give because a robe was destroyed, if they belong to relations, if they are invited, if it is by means of his own property, if he is mad, if he is the first wrongdoer. 
All right. So that was Nisagia. Nisagia, am I saying that right? Nisa, Nisagia. Yes, that was Nisagia 6 and 7. We're well on our way to 30. And then we'll find out what comes next. Well, that was kind of fun, wouldn't you say? A little, little bit? Special thanks to our special guests. And um, special thanks to you. All right, I'll go ahead and close now. Oh, um, if it's not too much trouble. To the people listening to the audio-only version, hello! All right, I'm closing now. To the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below, we send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Until next time.